Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Australian economics. Today for episode 339, my guest is Jeremy Rubin. He is a Bitcoin core contributor, and we're talking about Check Template Verify. So some of you would have heard of this, and some of you may not have. It is a soft fork proposal to bring some new functionality to Bitcoin. So in this episode, we talk about how the idea started, some of the high-level goals, some of the functionality, as well as the congestion control use case, and vaults to protect coins, as well as commercial use of check template verify, and also some of the trade-offs around this. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to buy Bitcoin and also learn about Bitcoin. And Swan Bitcoin is bringing back gifts. So if you want to gift Bitcoin to your loved ones, you can give that gift in the platform. They will sign up, and once they sign up, they can then convert that USD value you gifted to them into Bitcoin. Now, this is a great way to not just give them Bitcoin, but also get them on the right track in terms of Swan Bitcoin's world-class education and customer service. So go to swanbitcoin.com gift. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously. You can sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stablecoins without verification. Deal directly with other people and you together control the collateral through that whole deal with all interest paid at the end. Now, on the other hand, if you have stablecoins, you can earn extra on them. You can lend them out at the highest returns, issuing out over-collateralized loans with the full interest guaranteed. Lend at HodlHodl. Lend and borrow stablecoins on your terms at your desired interest rates. There are no hidden fees. The terms and conditions are transparent, and the users control the keys in the deal in escrow. Go and check it out. It's lend.hodlhodl.com. If you're looking to get into Bitcoin mining and you need a way to source an ASIC machine, Compass Mining can help you with this. They have relationships with the ASIC manufacturers and they can make it easy for you to purchase an ASIC machine. Now, if you're in the US, you can have that machine shipped to your home and you can mine from home and use some of the guides and the material that they make available. Or you can select a facility where that machine will be shipped and turned on and you will then pay hosting and you can select a mining pool to point your hash rate towards and start receiving sats. They've also got all sorts of guides and materials. They've got a newsletter and they've got audio content as well. So go check them out. The website is compassmining.io. And now onto the show with Jeremy. So Jeremy, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. So Jeremy, you've been uh, chatting a little bit and obviously building on this idea of check template verify. And I think there's a lot of people in the community who would really benefit from hearing from you exactly what it is and uh, talking a little bit about this journey of how you came to where it is now. Uh, And just for listeners who haven't heard of you before, or maybe they don't know a lot about you, do you want to just give us just a brief uh, intro and background on you and your history in Bitcoin? Yeah, so I first got interested in Bitcoin in 2011. You know, I mined a little bit in my dorm room and then shut my computer off when it got too loud and hot, regrettably. (laughs) Um, And then I really made more of a splash in the scene in 2013, 2014. I did a project called Tidbit, which was mining in the web browser at a time when that still would have been profitable, believe it or not. And uh, we got a bunch of legal trouble with that, sort of had a little bit of a, you know, personal crisis. Do I stay or do I go? I decided to stick around and started a bunch of projects, uh, this $100 giveaway at MIT, the Digital Currency Initiative. And since I graduated in 2016, I've been doing Bitcoin Core uh, contribution. Fantastic. And so our topic today is around check template verify. And it might be good if you could help us set the scene for how you got started thinking about check template verify and what was the motivation around it? 
Yeah, so back in, I think it was 2017, uh, Byron uh, Gibson said to me, hey, you know, why don't you give a talk at uh, the BPACE at Stanford? It was like blockchain protocol analysis and security engineering or something like that. Now it's Stanford Blockchain Conference. And I was like, oh, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Let me think about it. Well, like covenants are kind of this cool thing. Uh, maybe I'll do a talk about different covenants that you could do in Bitcoin that might be safe to you know, include and have some beneficial properties. Uh, covenants uh, at the time were viewed pretty negatively as like something that you could do to Bitcoin that could maybe do a lot of harm. So I thought that they were okay and interesting. So I wanted to maybe prod the research in that direction. Covenants are restrictions on how Bitcoin can be spent. Um, and so if you want you know, to, to feel like I'm fully in control of my coins, that could be a bad thing. What if somebody sends you a coin that has a covenant on it and it says that you can't use it to buy uh, cheeseburgers? Like that would be like very unfortunate if you got the Bitcoin just to buy cheeseburgers. And that's a joke, but like, you know, maybe it could be something more serious. Like, hey, here's a Bitcoin and you can't use it unless it's KYC AML'd by, you know, one of these government agencies, like that would be very, very serious. And so covenants are kind of viewed with a heavy amount of skepticism, even the name itself covenants, uh, like people are familiar with it primarily through like real estate transactions where covenants historically were used uh, in, at least in the States in like very like racist manners, like where it'd be like, you cannot sell this house to a black person. And even if you're not a racist and you buy the house that says you can't sell it to a black person, that covenant continues to restrict who you could sell the house to. So you can't even choose. And in order to get around from that, we had to, uh, you know, make a sort of constitutionally strike down all of those covenants and remove them from, you know, property transfers. So covenants kind of really scare people because they could have all these really negative things that could happen with Bitcoin. And uh, I wanted to show like, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe instead of thinking about how covenants could uh, impact coins that you receive, maybe we could think a little bit more about how you could use covenants for the coins that you own. And I came up with some examples and some ideas. And then I spent a couple of years really trying to figure out ways of introducing covenants uh, to the Bitcoin community in a way that people would accept. And I had very limited success until May of 2019. And I went to a San Francisco uh, BitDevs. Uh, I gave a presentation and I said, hey, here is sort of the simplest form of covenant possible. It's actually basically useless. However, once you have this basically useless type of covenant, here's how you can work with it to sculpt the clay and build lots and lots of really fantastic applications. And the community at first, you know, as the presentation started, they, they already knew covenants were really bad. And as I presented and shared more, slowly faces lit up a little bit and people were actually, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe this is a form of covenants that were okay. And I think it's kind of interesting because what my goal was with Check Template Verify um, in its original form is I wanted to move the Overton window of discussion. I wanted to give people a concrete example of a covenant that didn't really have a lot of the, these negative downsides of other forms of covenant, but still provided a lot of value. And uh, it did that. And what ended up resulting from that in the, the years that followed was you had people who were maybe hesitant about covenants saying maybe they're okay. And you had people who were hesitant before getting convinced that actually like maybe like more generalized, fully fleshed out covenants that are not this simple version would also be okay. And maybe we should pursue those too. So it's kind of opened the community up to considering covenants a lot more seriously. 
Um, and now there's sort of a crossroads in the community of like, well, is this check template verify concept delivering enough functionality? Is it reviewed enough that it's something that we would want to adopt right now? And what are the trade-offs or risks and what other approaches might we want to take? That's sort of all what's in the mix right now in discussion. And just for people who maybe they've really not heard about it, can you just give like a very basic explanation? What is check template verify? What does it actually do to our coins if we use it? So all that check template verify is, is the ability to, at the time that you create an address um, or you create an output, spend to an output, you can pre-commit to specific transactions you might want to have happen in the future. So the basic example um, in sort of a building block for a lot of smart contracts that you might want to do using it is an undo send button like you have in Gmail. I sent a coin. I, I fucked up. Like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to claw it back. I'm going to take that coin back. Now, obviously, we don't want, you know, Bitcoin sends to be invertible normally. And you'd want to be able to verify if this is an invertible spend. But hey, let's say that you're withdrawing funds from your cold storage. It actually might be nice if you had the ability to undo <laughs> the move from cold storage to hot storage for like one day, just in case you sent to the wrong address. So a covenant can kind of help with things like that. And that's an example of a, a single step covenant where the magic comes in for check template verify is that you can actually do a step that then has another step. So you could say, first it goes to this transaction and then the outputs of that transaction go to another transaction. And so by layering up these uh, simple covenants of saying, and then from this coin do this other transaction, you can build very complicated uh, flows of funds that are programmatically controlled you can provide multiple alternatives. So you could say, rather than just this specific transaction, you could say one of these 10 transactions is the action that I want to take. Um, and so that's sort of the building block that's check template verify. All it is, is a fancy way of committing to a transaction in advance of spending the funds. And so it might be good to also think about some of the overarching design goals and questions. And as you were writing about in your series, the advent calendar so listeners i'll put that in the show notes so you can go and check out jeremy's series i had to read through it and so there were a few interesting and important points that you raised in that series so it might be good to just talk a little bit about some of those and how they might apply in a check template verify world or just in the bitcoin world in general how do we think about these aspects so well i guess from your point of view what were some of the most important aspects that we have to think about for a bitcoiner yeah so i think that one of the funny complaints I get about check template verify is that like, it's not doing enough. Uh, like, oh, like we could make something more generic that does like this or does that, or it's sort of the point of check template verify is to be this minimum viable piece of functionality that lets you do all, a bunch of different useful things. It's not designed to be uh, the most powerful thing because, hey, we should probably be relatively conservative about adding something really powerful that might change the properties of Bitcoin really fundamentally. Uh, so it's not trying to be that. And so sometimes people will review it and they'll be like, we could come up with something way better and way, you know, uh, way more general, way more powerful. Like, why don't we go ahead and do that? And it's like, well, you know, then you'd have to convince the whole community that that's the right security trade-off for Bitcoin. And so that's that's one of the points is that Check Template Verify, it, it, it's designed in a stupid way to make it low risk. Like it, the actual implementation is incredibly conservative with the amount of changes or security uh, properties that it would modify for how Bitcoin works. That's sort of one thing that I think is important to understand of like inherently uh, it is a conservatively designed upgrade. 
And that's not necessarily something that, uh, you know, like maybe let's say when we're doing Taproot, Taproot is a little bit more ambitiously designed. We're trying to get in all of these things at once that we want to do. Um, and, you know, we definitely cut it off somewhere. Like we don't have cross input signature aggregation, but we crammed in tons and tons of features and tons of, you know, applications and use cases into Taproot. Check template verify is just very, very simple. So that's one thing that I think is important to understand. The other thing that I think is, is really just one of these key takeaways um, and, and something to think about for any sort of change to Bitcoin is a lot of people like to think about like a stack. You know, they go, what's the stack? And, you know, what are we building on top of this? And what they think is you should have a very strong foundation. And on top of that foundation, you should start building a, a better layer. And what you end up getting is a, uh, well, let's not call it a pyramid scheme, but you get a pyramid, right? Like you have a very strong foundation, then you build another layer and another layer and another layer. But at no point are the you know layers above sort of more ambitious in a sense. I mean, obviously you can do things in Lightning that you can't do on the, the base layer, but that's sort of the way that, that a lot of Bitcoiners think is like, oh, we, we can't do, you know, really sophisticated smart contracts right now because the foundation needs to be way more decentralized. And, uh, for example, people will cr criticize Ethereum. They'll say Ethereum is not decentralized. And so the smart contracts on it are stupid. Um, that's that's a very common complaint. Um, I'm sure you've heard. And what I want people to maybe internalize is it might not be a stack. It actually might be an arch. And covenants and the smart contracts you can build on them might be a keystone technology. So if you don't know like how arches work, basically you're building, uh, you know, two curving, uh, very unstable piles of bricks. And then it reaches the top, at which point you insert a large stone that puts pressure on the arch as it's forming and actually stabilizes the whole thing. So if you think about it that way of Bitcoin being a little bit like an arch, you can start saying, oh, actually, maybe some of these smart contracts are going to reinforce some of the really critical properties we want Bitcoin to have. These, you know, the stability, the strength, the resilience. Maybe until we have some of these keystone technologies, we don't get any of it at all. So I think that that is a, a very critical point that I bring up again and again in throughout the Advent series that, hey, some of the applications that we could maybe build with CTV really do reinforce and make Bitcoin a better Bitcoin, not just adding things that like nobody cares about, like CryptoKitties or something like that. It's actually adding things like privacy, scalability, decentralization and self-custody. And that's really the, the reason why I've been so motivated to to push Check Temple Verify forward. Yeah, because I was actually going to ask you that question of does Bitcoin even need smart contracts, right? So that's part of the question, right? And of course, it depends on how you answer that question because of course people could mm -hmm. say, well, Bitcoin already has time locks. It already has multi-signature. It already has certain basic forms of smart contracts. And then, so this is one of the arguments that happens between Bitcoiners and shitcoiners essentially who come out and be like oh see the contracts are not expressive enough and we should have like the ethereum java you know the virtual machine and so on so could you help i guess put that into context then in a bitcoin sense why in your view do smart contracts help bitcoiners in the, in their goals so one point of clarification when people say like ethereum has smart contracts bitcoin doesn't uh, it's definitely a case of people talking past each other. And if you want to make a metaphor for it, it would be like saying, in our country, we have a legal system. Okay, cool. And then somebody might say, oh, well, like in our country, we also have a legal system. We only have employment contracts, though. And you go, okay, yeah, you know, those are contracts. That is contract law. That is a legal system. But 
when the Ethereum people say we have a legal system, they're really talking about the ecosystem, like that there's lots of different types of things that can compose and combine together. And Bitcoin, it does not really have uh, yet that sort of broad ecosystem where things work together. That's something that I'm hoping to see with Check Template Verify is that people build different components that are reusable and composable. And we start seeing a little bit more of an ecosystem of applications emerging, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so bringing it back to those broader ideas that Bitcoin people we tend to care about. We care about things like being able to, for example, self-custody our coins. Uh, we care about being able to make sure there's no more than 21 million coins. We care about being able to, I guess, availability, being able to spend or receive coins when we wish to. Uh, and I guess also scalability, as in being able to do this at scale, mm-hmm. not just a few you know, internet nerds, a few thousand of us out there, but actually millions and someday billions of people. So Maybe if you could talk through some of those high-level ideas and how you see Check Template Verify assisting in some of those ideas, that would be useful for people. Yeah. So I think vaults is something that is sort of most intuitive for the everyday user because it's something everybody can directly benefit from um, rather than passively benefiting, um, even though there is also a passive benefit, which we can talk about. I think it's kind of interesting. The direct benefit is what do you do with your Bitcoin? Are you going to keep it on an exchange? That's, you know, everybody kind of knows not your keys, not your coin. Uh, If you don't, you know, like uh, at one point you could have executive order 6102 from 2022 that goes and says, look, you no longer have any Bitcoin on exchanges. They all have to be forfeited to the government and we're going to pay you out at some, you know, fair market value or not pay you out at all. So if you self-custody, that can't really happen. There's a group benefit of like the more people who self-custody, the less effective those types of measures would be. But at an individual level, I don't really know a single person who is just like really, really happy with their custody solution. Like nobody's, you know, just like ranting and raving about like, oh, like I feel so secure. I never worry about any, like everybody's very worried about like, okay, like what happens to my coins? What happens if somebody tries to get them while I'm, you know, walking around and tries to mug me? What happens if somebody breaks into my home? What happens if I die and then like my family doesn't get access? Like, so people are very concerned with all of these different, you know, what if questions. And one of the things that I think would be, uh, you know, just, you know, maybe a small benefit would be if there were tools that let people more easily control how their Bitcoin moved. To do that, it makes sense to maybe like go through a concrete user story. So right now, let's say that I either earn some Bitcoin or I buy some Bitcoin on on an exchange and now I've got some Bitcoin. Like, what do I do with it? Okay, I'm going to withdraw it because I don't want to keep it on the exchange or somebody's going to pay me. But let's say it's a lot of money and I want to do cold storage. So, okay, I'm going to generate some offline keys. Maybe I'm using one of those metal plates or like a cold card or some sort of offline device to generate a key. And then I send the Bitcoin there. But then how do I get it back? Like, let's say that I'm a responsible Bitcoiner and I've got all of my net worth in Bitcoin and like I need to pay for my rent or groceries. Like, okay, well, like, what do I do? Well, I've got to go to my cold storage and bring it online in some capacity. And that is a risk for a lot of people. You have the propensity to mess up when you go and bring your funds online. Also, you can kind of think about if somebody's watching you and they're saying, oh, well, like, I know that Jeremy goes and gets his coins on the first of every month. 
and I'm going to wait and see where he's going to go find where he keeps his, you know, little metal plate. And so all of those are kind of like very like risky and like scary, you know, things that could happen as behaviors. And so what I think the general issue is, um, and we can talk about multi-sig too, like maybe you've split it up, but like if you've got to withdraw from your multi-sig, you still need to go to three places. And so if you're, if you need to withdraw funds once a month, because you don't want to have too much funds in your hot wallet, well, then you've got to make sure that you're multi-sig setup is not so inconvenient that you can't do it every month. So if you're, if you wanted to say, have your keys in completely different countries, like nobody's going to be traveling to three different countries, you know, or two different countries, like every month, like that's infeasible for most people. So it ends up being a thing where it's like, oh yeah, it's a multi-sig, but like I keep one key in my, uh, you know, instant pot hidden and I keep the other key in uh, my, you know, uh, office desk drawer or something like that. That's not where I keep my keys if anybody's, you know, keen to go look in those places. And so you end up degrading how much security you want because the inconvenience factor is too high. Now, what you can observe out of this is that we've commingled the emergency behavior with the everyday activity. The everyday activity, which is withdrawing a little bit of coin, um, is not something that should use the same access patterns as your emergency backup procedure. Um, and that is a big problem. So now I've set the stage. So that was a lot of setup, but it's kind of nuanced to understand how Checknable Verify can help. With Checknable Verify, what I can do is I can deposit funds into a vault that is basically a time-release Bitcoin capsule. And once a month, Let's say it's 10 Bitcoin and I'm going to have it, uh, you know, over the next 10 months. Once a month, I have the option to pull out one Bitcoin. Now, once I pull it out, I can do whatever I want with it. But if I were to say have this going onto my cell phone and then my cell phone gets hacked. Now, I'm obviously going to lose whatever balance is on that phone at the time. But for whatever balance is in the vault, I know my phone got hacked and I have a backup procedure that redirects the funds back into my cold key, back into my multi-sig. It could even send it to my, uh, you know, my wife and kids, for example. So you could have whatever emergency procedure be something that you can trigger if you've experienced the negative outcome. And what that means is that your cold storage actually stays permanently cold because unless you have an emergency, you never need to bring it online. Nobody's there to observe your access patterns. When you're traveling for the holidays, you can leave one at your folks' home. You can take one you know, and have it in your office desk drawer and do one in like a bank safe deposit vault, whatever you want to do. But you can make it pretty inconvenient for you to access it regularly and then only have to do it in an exceptional circumstance. And that enables people to have a lot more security. The other property that's really critical about how Check Temple Verify works in particular um, compared to some alternatives, is that this whole setup is non-interactive. So there's never a point where, let's say I have funds on the exchange, I can directly move from the exchange into my vault. There's no day where I'm saying, okay, well, today I'm going to take custody of 10 Bitcoin and then I'm going to move it to the vault. I can directly do it um, into, uh, into a vault. And that's actually a really important use case um, and a good segue into some of the other topics, but I'll, uh, yeah, I'll sure. pause there for a sec. Yeah, sure. So essentially, we can think of it as like this way that potentially might help people have more control, let's say, around how they manipulate or manage their stack, whether that's their cold stack and let's say a hot wallet that they're using for more day-to-day receive and spend, mm-hmm. and that they would periodically flush out any extra into their cold stack 
you know, multi-sig or hardware wallet, whatever, you know, the, the cold storage setup is. And so I guess there's a few things that go into that because then we're going to need a whole new, like this is the early days, right? We're going to need a whole new raft of tooling and equipment and things that will work with that. Obviously, CTV is an important base part of this, but then we're mm-hmm. going to need wallets that work with it. We're going to need hardware wallets that would support that. We're going to need exchanges who know how to speak CTV. Right? They're going to need how to, you know, and of course, we've seen sometimes exchanges can drag their feet as we saw them with, say, SegWit and so on. But of course, this is the idea is you're building in the direction that might give more sovereignty and more, ideally, more availability as well. I think one other point that I'd be curious for you to touch on for listeners as well is just around that idea of congestion control and this idea that you you can sort of, I guess, manipulate depending on the state of the mempool. So for listeners who are new, the idea is if there's a lot of transactions all hitting the mempool at once, you're going to pay a lot to try to get into the next block. But what if we could sort of strategically time it to go at the off-peak yeah. times? Maybe if you could explain how CTV could help in that case. Absolutely. I, I do want to just quickly respond uh, to this this idea of tooling and integration. Uh, it is something that CTV is uh, very carefully designed to make it so that you can still use it even if exchanges refuse to implement it. Right. And that is sort of critical to this non-interactive property of how these transactions are created. You can literally create a taproot address that contains the covenant inside of it. And as long as the right amount of coin is sent to that taproot address, um, which is sort of the payment instructions that you've given to your exchange or to your you know, payee, uh, they have uh, uh, no ability to stop you. Um, so for something like a vault, only you would have to have software for it. Your exchange would not have to implement support for it. And there is software that's you know, in development for this. Um, and uh, part of what makes CTV a little bit simpler than more general covenants is that it just puts out a list of transactions at the end of the day, because it's remember, it's just pre-committed transactions. And so those pre-committed transactions actually already pretty much work with anything that supports a partially signed Bitcoin transaction. So a lot of hardware wallets already support that. So the, the support actually story should not be, uh, it, it actually should be, quite simple uh, compared to other upgrades like Taproot, which require an entire new signing algorithm or a new address output type. Uh, none of that is required for Check Impla Verify in particular. So that time to live is, is a lot faster than you might think. And so also then the congestion control aspect, if you could explain a little bit about how that works. Yeah. So I think one thing that is fun to do when you describe changes to Bitcoin is describing how they're ultimately flaws and how Bitcoin was designed originally. And there are certain things that you can point to where you'd say, okay, yeah, if if Satoshi knew about SegWit, SegWit would have been in Bitcoin originally. It's kind of a very straightforward thing. It was misdesigned slightly, but now we fixed it. There are a lot of things that have been like that over the years, like Originally in Bitcoin, when you evaluated, uh, you know, the script SIG and the script PubKey, you just concatenated them together and executed. And that was horrendously insecure, but it was patched and fixed and we improved it. Now for Check Template Verify, um, it is in a sense fixing one of these fundamental bugs of Bitcoin, which is that the time at which you spend a coin and which you receive a coin are inherently bundled in the transaction right now. So when I choose to spend a coin, let's say I want to pay 100 people, at that exact same time, I also need to create the outputs for those 100 people. 
that's a little bit weird. What if all of those outputs, they're not planning to spend for a year? Why am I paying for block space today? Why am I using this finite time-sensitive resource today when actually it's going to be a random process over the next year of when people actually claim those outputs and spend them? Why bother creating the UTXOs if we don't know when we need them? And so that's kind of the, the, the fundamental bug in how Bitcoin transactions are structured is that outputs are just a list of outputs rather than a Merkle tree of outputs where they're only lazily created. That's what congestion control is. It's letting a sender who is creating a lot of outputs choose to defer the actual creation of those UTXOs and smooth out the difference between the urgency of confirming that funds have been sent, which is very urgent, right? You don't want to have an unconfirmed transaction in the mempool for a very long time because you might not actually get paid. So splitting that out between spending, knowing that you can receive and actually receiving. And so by making those uh, sort of two separate concepts, spending, knowing you can receive and receiving, um, that allows the network to process transactions in a lazy and very efficient way so that you create a bimodal, that means there's kind of two lumps of the, of the graph uh, mempool where there are things that are trying to confirm a spend and there are things that are trying to receive and those receiving transactions are much less urgent because you already know that you, know, you can receive tomorrow and the funds are as locked in. So for big institutions like, uh, you know, let's say like Coinbase or like Kraken, who just do tons and tons of volume, um, one thing you can imagine is that when you go and request a withdrawal, you get put into a batch of everybody who wants to be withdrawn at that time. And if you are withdrawing from one exchange to another exchange, okay, the other exchange can see and immediately credit your account. If you are withdrawing into a vault and the vault is a time release vault happening over the, the span of months, then you don't care about getting that vault created immediately. You can do it, you know, sort of very lazily and just expand it, you know, when you see fit. So that's sort of the insight of congestion control that some of these things you are, are actually not very time sensitive. Uh, the best example of this is lightning channels. When you open a lightning channel, you don't want to use it necessarily until it's confirmed. Otherwise, the funds can maybe be double spent, but you don't really need the output to actually exist. It can just be provably that you could redeem it when you wanted. And so by combining something like congestion control with lightning channels, you can actually open up tons and tons of payment channels that you can then immediately get liquidity on and then only lazily claim them if there's ever a reason to close it out. And so what would it look like in practice then? So let's say we were living in a CTV world and the exchange can pay out to me. Uh, let's say I, I purchase some coins on the exchange. I withdraw them into my CTV enabled vault. And let's say the mempool is very high right th at that time. It's very expensive right now. So the exchange you know, uses this technique to sort of lowball that fee and say, okay, we're just going to put it out there at a lowball fee and then... What's happening on my side? Do I have a wallet that's kind of looking and seeing, ah, oh, I can see there's a waiting transaction out there in the mempool, but it's like a very, they put it in at a low sat per byte. And I can then, let's say, I could I claim that in a more, let's say, you know, in a few months down the line, I'm like, oh, actually, I need that money now. How do I do it? What would that look like? 
Yeah, so people, uh, this, this is something that people like to sort of like freak out about because they're going like, look at all the complexity that's going to happen. And, and I think it's important to kind of zoom out a little bit and remember that if somebody is going to claim that they paid you, they have to be able to provide proof that they paid you. So if you withdraw from Coinbase ever, I, we can, I don't want to pick on them in particular, like legally, they permanently have to keep a record that they paid you. Or maybe they get a signature from you that you have accepted the payment, but like they have to be able to keep those transactions. Otherwise, if you withdraw, you can just sue them and say, hey, you didn't pay me. And then they have no defense if they can't provide those records. So this is something that already exists. Uh, that's my, my you know, first kind of point. Uh, the second point is that what happens today if you're not doing any sort of batch payment and then somebody pays you and the transaction sticks in the mempool forever because it's not confirming. Right. Okay. Well, they have to pay more fees, but block space is finite, so not everybody can get that. What's the story around that? How do how do wallets handle that today? Um, so these are just kind of like you know they're they're sort of almost like like cones for enlightenment. In the the enlightenment is that like what we're doing today already is kind of broken in the way that everybody's concerned that CTV congestion control might be broken because these things you already have to do. People just don't really necessarily recognize it because blocks are empty. As soon as blocks become full over long periods of time, people become very aware of the fact that things fall out of the mempool. They've got to like revive these transactions and stuff. So the way that, that I see CTV progressing, um, and, and this is more concrete over the next, like, let's say, couple years, would be at first, exchanges will uh, take the opportunity to say that they're just going to do a two-stage transaction. One transaction is just going to lock in that all of the funds are confirmed. And that will pay high fee, but it will pay a high constant amount of fee. And this is incentive compatible. That means that this is the behavior that would naturally emerge because when exchanges have a transaction that gets stuck in the mempool, they want to replace by fiat. And when you do a replace by fee, you have to pay an increase in fee rate, which for a size N transaction means you have to pay N more fee. So having a single a transaction with a single output means you only have to pay O of one more fee to fee bump. So naturally, what exchanges will want to do for congestion control is they'll want a single root transaction with a single output that they'll bump and bump and bump until it gets confirmed in a block. That will be the most fee efficient thing for them to do. And that output will commit to a transaction that pays out the batch of all the users that they want to do. And that will be less time urgent, right? Because it'll say, okay, well, we can prove to you Here's the transaction, but now our SLA, that's like a, you know, businessy term that just means, a, you know, our service license agreement or something like that. It just means like service level agreement, service yeah. level agreement. Like what are, what are you, what are you guaranteeing the user that they get? What an exchange might say is we guarantee that you get one block finality or one, you know, two block, you know, like we, we guarantee that we're going to be paying top of the mempool. Maybe somebody censors us or doesn't like us, but we guarantee we will always pay top of the mempool for confirmation of receipt of funds. Nothing's going to be sitting. However, we have uh, one week with which that we can take the opportunity to pay a lower fee rate for the full redemption, but we are still on the hook for that. We will still solve that in a centralized manner. So, and if you've got a lightning channel in there, which is part of that non-interactivity that you can do that right now, you can't do that. Like it'll, everything will you know, ultimately be okay. Um, and you can use it immediately. So that's sort of like the first step on that congestion control journey. Now, one further point would be, what if you have customers who have different SLAs? You have customers who you want to give a one-week guarantee, and you have customers who you want to do a uh, one-month guarantee. 
And different customers might have different needs that would constrain that. For example, if you're depositing from one exchange from another, that exchange might say, look, it's not sensitive for us. Like, give us the, the cheapest option because we know we have the funds, we can account for it, and we manage you know, many, many withdrawals. So we always have enough liquidity. We don't really care. Uh, consider it just like, ex, you know, a little bit colder storage. We can see when those funds are moving, right? So they might want to pay less. The others might want to pay more. Now, if you have two different groups of users who want to pay different rates, you can't put those in the same transaction because transactions only pay. And this is sort of building some intuition for why I was saying it's a bug in Bitcoin. Outputs that have different priorities can't go in the same transaction unless you want to overpay for half of them, Right. So now you could imagine instead of creating one fan out, you could say, okay, well, there's another layer that fans out into, you know, 10 different buckets for different service level agreements, right? So things that are lightning channels are like maybe really, really not time sensitive because they're already created and usable. Things that are cross exchange are a little bit more time sensitive, but still not very. And then things that are like, actually, we just need the funds available for some arbitrary thing. That's high priority maybe. And people are willing to pay for that. Now, what's cool, and this is where we've got to go you kind of have to go back and ask the question, like I said earlier, what's happening right now? What's happening right now is if you have a lot of users requesting withdrawals, things are unconfirmed. So already this story is like immensely so much better for the user because they are getting that instant, you know, like next block finality experience for a mempool that is completely full and otherwise they would not be able to get confirmation at any reasonable price. Um, and, and we can talk about why that's important for like decentralization and self-custody as well. Like, you know, it, right now, if you wanted to like it drain every account on, let's say like Coinbase, it would take you like weeks, you know, or months of transaction time in order to do that. Now, if you're shutting down a, a service, uh, because like, oh, you know, the government, you know, is doing some order and we're going to shut, shut out all our accounts before that happens. Now you can actually clear all those shutouts immediately. It's, it's very, very good for users that this is possible. And sort of the, the, the longer, you know, and this is sort of like the final, like sometime in the future, like you're just going to be receiving arbitrary proofs and it's maybe going to be the user's responsibility. Maybe if you've got a better SLA with the exchange or payer, you know, they're going to expand it for you, but you'll get these proofs and you'll have not that much work to do if you want to get paid, but like you've got a little bit of transactions to do log N if nobody else, if you're the first person and Ultimately, people worry about the overheads. I've sort of proven in some models that there's no overhead from this approach. But you'll get something, and you know, when you want to spend from that coin, you will have to, uh, you know, do some on-chain work, claim the coin, and then spend it. Keep in mind that's that that's that mempool with different humps. Like now that you're trying to do a spend, you want to pay the higher fee rate, whereas everybody who just wants a lazy redemption will just do the work passively when the mempool is low enough. That's sort of the view for congestion control. I think it's really, really good for all users of Bitcoin. I think it's really, really good for businesses that are operating on Bitcoin, that they have more control and, and fine-grained control over these things. But it does just seem kind of like nerdy niche and like nuance. So everyone's like, ah, do we really need this? Blocks are empty. And I'll give you the strongest argument for that. And then I'll, then I'll you know, stop, which is Jevin's paradox. Blocks are empty because everybody knows, you know, in the free market somewhere that this problem exists. And relying on Bitcoin for these use cases might be really inefficient. If we make it more efficient, then more people will use it and then we'll see blocks get full. So it's not really a valid argument to say blocks are empty, so we don't really need stuff like this yet. Because, well, blocks are empty because everybody knows they can't rely on blocks being not you know, full. It's kind of like one of these like chicken or egg problems. If we make the block space much more efficient to utilize, more people will use it. 
Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about upgrading your Bitcoin security? Are you interested to remove single points of failure? Unchained Capital can help with their collaborative custody. This is a multi-signature setup, so you can bring two hardware wallets and Unchained can be the third key to create a two of three setup. Now, you can set this up for free or you can have guided assistance with the concierge onboarding program. Now, in doing so, you can give yourself additional comfort that you haven't lost your coins because even if you make one mistake, you can still recover your coins and make sure you still retain access to them. And so this is a program where they will ship you the hardware wallets, they will teach you how to use the setup and then deposit some Bitcoin in your vault. So if you want to get started, go to unchained.com and select the concierge onboarding program and use code Levera for a discount. Now, if you are looking for a Bitcoin hardware wallet, my favorite is the cold card by CoinKite.com. CoinKite are focused on hardware security and hardware solutions for Bitcoiners out there. The cold card is a very versatile piece of equipment. You can use it just in a standard single signature mode with directly plugging it into the computer, or you can use some of the more advanced features and functions like you can use a passphrase, you can use seed XOR, you can use the cold card as part of a multi-signature setup, and of course you can learn to use it in an air-gapped way with a micro SD card. So if you're interested to get one, go to coinkite.com and use the code Lavera to get a discount on your cold card. And finally, Brains.com. That's Brains with two eyes. Brains are a Bitcoin mining company through and through. And if you're into Bitcoin mining, you've got to check out Brains OS Plus and make sure you check out this firmware that you can install onto your ASIC. This optimizes miner performance so you get more hash rate for your electricity bill. Now, some of the currently supported models, they are supporting Bitmain and Miner models S19, S19 Pro, T19, and S19J Pro. Brains OS Plus also supports S9, S9i, S9J, and all X17 models. And next in the development pipeline, they've got what's minor models coming. So go to brains.com and you can check that out. Also, if you point your hash power towards the slush pool, you are getting 0% pool fees, which is a nice benefit also. So make sure you check them out. It's brains.com. And now back to the show with Jeremy. Okay, so the way I see it, and I broadly see the point of that, I think it makes a lot of sense because it's one of those things where it might not look like we have a problem until we do. And then all of a sudden, we might be in a situation where there are lots of people who cannot, who literally cannot self-custody because they either can't afford the price to get into the next block and just literally not everyone can fit into the next block. And of course, we could say, look, exchanges... Nowadays, they support batching. So maybe that would be a little bit better than, let's say, if this were to happen in 2017, whereas at the time when exchanges didn't support batching and didn't have SegWit. Whereas nowadays, you could sort of argue, okay, SegWit plus batching plus maybe a little bit of impact from Lightning, and that might be enough for today. But who knows? If we were to hit 10x in users or some crazy, you know, and crazier things have happened, then at that point, it would be quite difficult for people who, especially for people who aren't rich enough to be able to pay the high fee, right? So, of course, if you're, a, if you're a Bitcoin baller, you can pay and you're fine. But this is sort of more about, I guess, this idea could be argued as it's actually improving accessibility in a self-sovereign way. And so I guess that's part of why I was reading about this and thinking, oh, okay, that could be interesting uh, from that perspective. Because in that view, if more and more people can self-custody, well, then that, in some sense makes the overall system more robust because more and more people can now self-custody. Now it's harder to go out there and individually 
control those people instead of going to the one choke point, the choke hold, or the, the big exchange or vault aspect. So I can see it from that point of view. But if you could just explain for us what it would look like, I mean, let me see how, let me say how I'm understanding it. So the idea is you might have some CTV enabled wallet or software, and it's maybe it's watching the blockchain and it's sort of watching, okay, the mempool and the mm-hmm. blockchain and sort of going, oh, okay, fees are high right now. This exchange has broadcast its withdrawal. And I can see mine is in there. I've got my proof. But the fees are high right now. So I'm going to wait until the fees are low to actually then pull it out into my, I guess, my own wallet. Is that how it would work? Or like, help me understand that. So sort of the funny thing, and this is why I, I keep pointing back and saying all the code for this and like all of the issues already exist. So what happens today if, let's say there's like, I, I don't know if your listeners will know the term long chain, but it means like, a stream of transactions. So like A pays to B pays to C pays to D pays to U. And what happens if all of those are unconfirmed sitting in the mempool? What does your wallet do with that? Right? Like you you do, if you see those in the mempool, and, and I think that that's where people are, you know, a little bit confused of like, I'm trying to decongest block space, but like, I'm okay with still broadcasting things, right? Broadcast whatever you want, let users know about it, right? But this is really just stuff that Bitcoin Core wallet should do. When you see a long chain and you see yourself getting paid by it, you should, and I think you actually do, save all those transactions because those are things that you need to know if you want to get paid. And it's very rational that you should save those things. Like, it'd be very, like, I would be, I'm pretty sure we do save those transactions, but like, it would be weird if you deleted a transaction that was paying you. Like, there's no good reason to do that. So in a, in a congestion control world, if you imagine that you're not trying to decongest the broadcast or the mempool, but you're trying to decongest the block space availability, right? You would see these transactions, you would save them. And then you can, with certain forms of congestion control, trace up that it's a congestion control transaction and you could credit yourself with the balance, right? You could say, okay, I, you know, I got paid. Then let's talk about coin selection. When you go to do a transaction, it is your wallet's job to give you the cheapest transaction possible, right? Like if you have uh, some some coins that for some reason, uh, you know, you, you have a bunch of little coins or you have one Bitcoin and you're trying to do a big transaction, like you should use the big one because it's going to be cheaper than using all the little ones that you have, right? So wallets already know about the idea of what is the cost of me using this output and the... I think that they should know um, one other thing that wallets should do right now is if you see something that's going unconfirmed for a long time and it's not trusted, so you can't prove to yourself at CTV, you want to child pays for parent that to drive the confirmation. Wallets already should be doing this, right? So it's so so that's where like for a lot of these, and I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record, these are already problems that exist that you will see when mempool gets more full. The difference is with check template verify, you at least can know that the funds are fully confirmed and can't be double spent. So that's sort of like the, like, you know, the, the, the software for that should already exist in core. And to the extent that it doesn't, whether or not CTV gets merged, it's a bug, right? Like we should fix that. That would better match rational user behavior that you'd want to track things that are paying you. You'd want to CPFP them. You'd want to save them. Um, and when you're making a transaction, you'd want to compute, well, what's it going to cost for me to do this transaction that CPFPs this thing? What's the cheapest thing I can CPFP? And that, and this is sort of where congestion control is really cool, is it exerts a passive back pressure because you will 
passively wait for the cheapest thing. And the longer you wait to spend an output, the more chance there is for somebody else to do part of the expansion and pay for some of the transactions you would have to do to get to your individual output. So that's where it sort of makes uh, wallets very lazy in trying to defer doing the work for somebody else to pay for it who has more urgency. And that, ex that, that that's a back pressure on the entire network of saying people will prefer to wait to spend funds because somebody else might have more priority. That's a very good thing for, it's not like decreasing demand, but it's increasing willingness to wait for getting that full redemption because there's a benefit for waiting. Yeah, so we can think of it like we're decomposing Let's say, as you said, there might be the very high priority people who are like, I want it now and I'm willing to pay for it. And then there's that kind of medium level people. And then like the very, I'm very patient. I don't need it right now. You take as long as you want because I want to pay the minimum. And so we're trying to yeah. decompose those in a way that makes kind of more sense. Like the high fee paying person is like, yeah, I'll pay mm -hmm. it now. So if I understand you, but if you could just help me understand this part, is it essentially then that instead of actually broadcasting the transaction, exchanges are just going to give you a proof. They're just going to hand you a proof and say, hey, Jeremy, I know you wanted to withdraw these coins, but actually we're in a CTV world and you've told me you're a low, you know, you're we're happy to wait. So here's a proof instead. And you just trust that until such time as that you actually, actually need it. Is that roughly how? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to trust it. You can verify it, right? It's not really like particularly sensitive like you can store it you know in a google drive you can put it you can send it to your friends you know you can back it up however you want now th there are some other applications we can talk about too that it sort of like take it to the next level but like for, for the most part like these things are not sensitive whatsoever it's just like okay it's a thing that you have it's a receipt um if you think about it like with things like uh xo uh if you're if you've i think you've had a show on that um it's very similar to that like you're, you can't just go to the network and say i have this utxo you've got to carry the proof that it exists it actually you can kind of squint and ctv looks like an in-band version of xo right uh where yeah you've got to keep the proof of how to actually get that redemption now there could be situations where the exchange like gives you a ctv thing that's like the proof is like a million long and you're like what the heck so businesses would probably want to put like limits on that they'd say like look like we're not going to give you a proof that's like longer than 32 uh you know that would be really long 32 transactions you have to do but 32 if you have uh uh i, I can't do the math off the top of my head but like if you have uh you know radix four like you know, four, that that means like four like every time the transaction splits it splits into groups of four it's kind of optimal for some niche math reasons but you'd be talking about like four to the 32 people getting paid in a transaction and that would cause the, the depth 32 so like that would be like way too big you know like probably like something like you know 16 or like i think i think and sorry like i just don't have the numbers memorized but i think like 14 transactions of size four outputs each one input would be enough to cover a billion users just to give you like some back of the envelope math. Right. So it could be way less than that. Yeah. Yeah. So it would probably be way less than that. And the longer you wait, the shorter the amount of proof you're responsible for gets. So, and, and for every person who does a transaction that's in your subtree, you lose one of those. So it gets, it gets pretty small pretty quickly. The total overheads, if you go up a tree, you know, end up being uh, linear. So it's not like um, some people are like, isn't this like exponentially more data? It's like, no, like it's actually like, you know, in, in some uses of it, it's like 1.2 times more data than if you just did a single batch. And in some applications of where we talk about priority groups, you can actually prove that it's actually cheaper for some 
very niche reasons that you know are probably out of scope for right now, but you know we can get into it if if, if you have interest. And, and so that's so, sort of like it's not that bad. Um, and the other thing that's interesting, and I'm always going to point back to, well, like what's happening today? If you received a batch transaction, it obviously can't be a billion big, but it really could be like a thousand big, right? So let's say you received a batch that's a thousand big and it's not getting confirmed. So then you've got to CPFP it. You CPFPing that batch is going to cost you for all the other thousand people, which is really expensive. But if you have four times 14 outputs that you're paying for, that's like very small, right? You're paying for under 100 outputs. So, you're, you know, it's like 20 times more efficient for you as the end user. So selfishly, like this is 20 times cheaper for you to get into a block than if you had the batch of 1,000 directly going. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And so I guess in practice nowadays, exchanges might be doing like a batch withdrawal, let's say 100 outputs, right? But in this, in this example, they could sort of chunk that down into those, I don't know, uh, stratified groups of yeah. like low fee, medium and high fee people. And I don't know, maybe there's even an argument of like, if you are a low fee person, but somehow you got included in a batch with a high fee person and that high fee person, CPFP, does child pay for payment, you get the free ride because now he, yeah, exactly. you get the free ride because he paid more and now you get your coin confirmed sooner because he, he took on the, the cost for your little patch or batch or whatever we're calling it. Yep. So that's an example there. You could even put, you know, and this is sort of an example, people worry about like, well, like what if there's no incentive? Like you could even have a change output in every like of these like sub batches that's owned by the exchange and the exchange would say, Hey, look, if you know, like, don't worry about this batch getting lost. Cause like I'll lose money. <laughs> so like, like I have incentive and that's actually kind of cool as well. The, 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 the more people who are, in, you know, the, the bigger, the sub batches, the more data redundancy you have. Cause now you have, like, if you're four, you've got four people who also have an incentive to try and get that thing. So if you had an outage, like there's still probably somebody out there who like has that. And if you made it 10, it would be like 10 people. Now that's not perfect, but like, that's something that, you know, it just is kind of a cool property of it to think about. Other people have incentive. Yeah, gotcha. And so one other question I wanted to raise now, and this is also related to Shinobi's blog post, which I'm sure you've seen as well, which is like this idea around, I guess it's a little hypothetical, but let's talk that out. So what Shinobi, as I understand him, is he was getting at this idea that imagine if the ecosystem had gone into, let's say we went into a CTV world and there were people who maybe got essentially trapped in a way where they were sort of coins that were sort of locked into a script with, as an example, with like a very long redemption time or like to your risk that you pointed out earlier that let's say the government is a counterparty and that, that maybe they're a counterparty that the user doesn't want. So do, what's your view on that? Do you view that as an overly mm -hmm. theoretical risk or how are you thinking about that? Yeah, so it's kind of, uh, Shinobi has a very like particular argument around this, um, which I, I think it, it, it is coherent. I don't know if I fully agree with it, but the, uh, the argument is that covenants are okay as long as you can prove that they terminate. And not just that you can prove that you terminate, but because uh, maybe that's like too technical, but like that you had to decide all the possible things that could happen with this covenant before you spent to it provides some form of like social safety that uh, of how they'll actually be used. So an example of a covenant that maybe would annoy someone is uh, let's say I'm on my deathbed. Um, you can pre-plan for these things too. And I want to bequeath, you know, one Bitcoin a year to, you know, one of my children. 
right? Like I can give it to them and there's no way they can get it faster. <laughs> like that might really annoy them, right? Because they'd be like, oh, like, you know, and, and you know, I have enough Bitcoin, uh, you know, I wish, like, let's say I could do this, you know, for their, their whole expected lifetime, right? So they're going to be getting one Bitcoin a year, you know, for a uh, hundred years or something like that. And they might be really annoyed by that. There'd be no way for them to get out of it. So like, it is actually like kind of a problem, right? Like you've got to be careful when you said to these things, they can live for a very long time. But where, you know, Shinobi makes the argument is going, like, well, well that, that kind of thing is okay because you had to explicitly decide the day that you wanted this thing to end, all of the installments, and you pre-committed to every possible state transition so you knew exactly what was going to happen. That's kind of okay. Where Shinobi has a problem is not with Checkable Verify, but with more uh, powerful covenant varieties. Um, you might have something where you say, this coin, um, as long as the government signs off on it permanently, <laughs> it, it can be spent however you want. And it's like, okay, well, like now what happens? Well, what's the cost of receiving this coin to you? It's actually not that high. You'd be like, well, the government's kind of fine. They're signing off. I don't mind taking it. And these things could maybe proliferate and become relatively innocuous, right? This could be something that maybe, you know, an uh, exchange is doing. They get an order that says, hey, you've got to make all of your you know, all of your taproot top level things uh, also have, you know, another government key that requires approval for the transaction. And that could be a thing that happens, right? That would be bad. So that's something that sh I think sh Shinobi is particularly worried about that covenants would just sort of cause this to be the case socially that like people are uncareful and it's really easy to coerce these covenants on people because you receive a coin, it's got a covenant, but you know, hey, the transaction seems to be going through okay. Um, and, and that's it, it is it, it. I think the point that he's making is it, it is very different from a world where when you construct a covenant, you have to pre-plan every possible thing the coin could do in its future until it exits the covenant. Those are just very different models. And, and I think where you know there's an argument that you know Shinobi's wrong is that you can kind of do these things with multi-sig already. The point that Shinobi makes at at that point is like, well. At least with a multi-sig, there's still some human in the loop deciding whether you want it to keep on happening. But like if it's just a covenant that's self-enforcing itself, like you can't even vote that out of office. Yeah. It's just you're just stuck with it forever and you've got to live with, you know, whatever that means. So I, I do I, I think it's a sound argument, you know, overall. I don't know if I uh, agree with it being something that we should worry about. There are lots of ways to destroy Bitcoin that are, you know, problematic. Uh, I am sympathetic to the idea that like what people do socially has an impact, even if you don't use it personally, because like if everybody else gets 6102, like my coins are probably not valuable anymore. So I, I, I'm sympathetic to it. And I think that, you know, more broadly, like Bitcoin is a big tent and you got, have to respect everybody's opinion when you're pushing something. And so that's where like I, I think most people are are still, in, you know, maybe developers have convinced themselves that covenants are good. But I think most people are still at the point where they're like, this sounds scary. Like, you know, like, let's be very cautious with this. And that's where I, I still feel like CTV is a very solid approach to adding covenants insofar as it is a very, very locked down, restricted model of types of things that you can do that happens to be very useful that you can do a lot of great things with, but none of these sort of socially dangerous things people might worry about. So let me try to summarize some of that. So essentially part of Shinobi's concern and part of the overall concern could be that if covenants are done in a certain way that people could get trapped into certain conditions, whether of their own doing, like that they had written up a 
a condition that was just too restrictive or actually didn't reflect what they really wanted, or arguably the social aspect of, let's say, having a government as a counterparty on every transaction or something like that. And and then I guess your rejoinder might be something like that would apply in terms of it just means you have to write your CTV and write your template and write your contracts and conditions, uh, and that's kind of where it's going. And I guess part of your argument is also that that could even happen happen today if, say, the government came out and said, okay, every exchange, all your coins, we want to be at least one of your multi-sig parties or even the majority quorum holder on your coins, and that could happen today. Is that roughly what you're saying? Yeah, I think maybe just because it might be hard for the the audience to to parse is that uh, Shinobi likes CTV. So his view is kind of that like something like CTV is basically near or at the limit of how sophisticated covenants can be without introducing uh, these social issues that, that, that he worries about. Uh, and, and maybe there could be some things that are similar, but like as soon as you start going, you know, to covenants that could be potentially infinite or things that are, uh, you know, more more dynamic state or can be substituted in, like some of these concerns become a little bit more grave and, and merit more consideration. And his view is basically like we can get to CTV. There are enough demonstrated benefits of something like that that it might be worth doing. Um, but going beyond that, he gets very upset when, uh, you know, it's mentioned of like, oh, well, like CTV is a good first step in covenants that will build confidence and maturity around. He's like, no, 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 it's not a first step. It is the step. There's nothing that should come after it. So it's more like a concern of going too much beyond what it is. Yeah. At least as I understand it. And so the other part, so I know any prevout is not really directly comparable with check template verifier, but just for the sake of clarifying for listeners, could you help explain for them how they differ? Yeah. So check template verify and any prevote are conceptually very close in that they're both based on different ways of hashing a transaction. Hashing just means committing to, you know, that's how you decide, you know, which transaction you should do. You know, it's like, okay, well, like you propose this transaction, we're going to add up all these little bits and we're going to check that the signature covered that, or we're going to check that that was in the script. So at, at core, um, CTV and any prevout are both ways of hashing a transaction, committing to what you want to have happen. The difference is that CTV is a direct commitment to that hash in the script. And any prevout is being able to do that dynamically with a signature. Now, as a quirk of how any prevout is structured, it turns out the fields that you cover in the transaction are relatively similar. And that enables you to directly commit to a signature inside of the script at the time you create the output. That's something that you can't, I mean, you could do it today, but if you went to validate that, it would cause what's called a hash cycle, which means you're trying to sign something that includes itself as the signature, and then you can't ever really do that computation. And so you can't validate that signature. Um, but with any prevote, you can, and that means that you can commit to a particular format of a transaction using any prevote, and they do intersect to a degree. Um, I would be very happy if any prevote were to be uh, delivered to Bitcoin, um, and there would be things I could build. There are a couple cases where they don't intersect, 
And they have uh, relatively large differences in terms of the cost of using it. And that's where if congestion control is something that's relatively an important use case, cost actually kind of matters. Making all of the congestion control transactions more expensive is kind of a bad thing. So that, that's one of the arguments where it's like, even if they do overlap, the situations where you might use them differ pretty broadly. And there's also some issues with, you know, like, okay, well, like, how are you picking which key you're using for this? And, you know, is there a single key you can use? You've got to generate these signatures. It makes compilation much slower. It, it just sort of balloons in terms of like, there's, there's all these different, you know, things that go in that they're sufficiently different, sufficient, you know, like one is like higher, you know, uh, higher costs than the other. So I, I don't think they're really like actually that competitive where they might be competitive is I think that there's, uh, you know, two arguments from either, you know, let's call them camp, but I think everybody's friends here. One is that, well, if CTV is sort of conceptually a subset of what you can do with any prevout from a risk averse perspective, it actually helps any prevout be audited as being safe sooner, because if we can agree that CTV is safe, then any prevout has less review surface required, because we already know these things are doable. So that's one benefit of, uh, of having it. And if you're really risk averse, and you want to sequence things, you want to say this and then that, we can show that the smaller thing is safe, and then we can move to a, a more sophisticated thing after. That's one argument. The other argument you could make is you could say, well, why don't we just do any prev out first? Because we'll get something similar to CTV. And if it's so popular that we want to optimize it, then we'll optimize it in the future. Why not just do something that covers both use cases now? And this is where things get dicey is I think people like to hold these things as like very abstract concepts in their head and just go, oh, like this next or that next. It's like, well, CTV is, is very simple. And, you know, developers may agree or disagree about the specifics of this. It is basically an emergible state today where if we decided that we wanted it, like it could be in a release in the next couple months. Like that, that, it, that you can, you can question me on it. Some developers have dissented uh, that, that that's the case, but like it, it basically has the shape of what you would expect a BIP to have before getting merged. It has been reviewed by a lot of different people. It's been used by a lot of different people. Um, the, there are tests that are relatively exhaustive. There are test vectors that any implementer could use to verify that they implemented it correctly if they're doing it as a third-party thing. There are you know, tool chains built on top of it for like Rust, you know, Bitcoin, and Sapio. So, so it's, it's, it's in a relatively good state um, for the things that it's, it's saying it should do. There's an open PR. Uh, any prevout is not in that state right now. And so, you know, the notion of like, oh, well, like we, you know, we should be doing any prevout. Really the question is like, okay, well, who wants to advocate for it? And this is where the, the, the issue kind of comes up is that any prevout is something that nobody wants in particular. People want L2, right? So people aren't getting excited about APO as like, this is what I need. They want L2, but nobody actually wants L2. What they want is they want the Lightning Network to be better, right? So it's sort of like, 
when, when you ask, it's sort of like when you're, when you're debugging, you know, a tech support problem, you always have to ask somebody, well, like, what do you, what are you actually trying to do? Cause they're going to come to you and, and they're going to be like, how do I plug in the, uh, you know, the, uh, VGA cable into my printer and you're going to start telling, and you're like, wait a minute, what are you trying to do? Oh, you're just trying to do a scan. Like, here's how you do the scan, right? So when you peel back the layers on like, well, what are you actually trying to do? The, the, the thing people want to do is make lightning as good as possible. And for BIP 118 in particular, we want to do better watchtowers. We want state compaction. And, you know, th those are kind of like the, the main things that any private is bringing. There are other things we want. We want, you know, like better performance. We want multi-party channels. There, there are certain things that we want to experiment with. Um, and and those, are, those are all good things. The, the problem with, with any private becomes if it is really the upgrade that is for the Lightning Network, right, that is to give us the better Lightning Network, we want to thoroughly make sure that when we get APO, it doesn't need to be subtly different or there aren't other things that need to happen at the same time in order for us to actually use it. And that, it, to me, is sort of the main holdup for because there is such a specific structure of the application that we have to deliver with BIP 118, it actually is worth not doing that one prematurely until we fully fleshed out what the lightning spec upgrade would look like. And there are it's not just like fudding that there are problems. Like there are real issues that we need to think about to make Lightning work perfectly. Like how do you get transactions into the mempool? How do you add fee to them? Like those are those are very big questions. What do you know? What do the PTLCs look like? Um, it was only like a couple you know months ago that AJ realized that just with Taproot you can get rid of the state storage issue. You can't solve for watchtowers. You can't solve for the toxic waste problem, but if you want to run a channel, you only need to store a constant amount of data per channel now. You don't need to store all previous transactions. So like we're still even kind of figuring out what we can do with Taproot to make the best Lightning possible. And there are still issues in Lightning that we know APO is not going to be solving and that we still want to figure out around like, you know, mempool pinning and various attacks and things like that, layered commitments, the exact protocol that we'll be running. There are developers who have concerns around like, well, do we even want to get rid of punitive channels? Like, is the punishment actually good in situations where the mempool is really congested? Will people have incentives to just try to cheat constantly? And so for all these reasons, like it just sort of becomes from my perspective, like very much up to the Lightning Network to deliver a coherent, this is a upgrade or set of upgrades that can be used in conjunction and are perfectly designed to give us a much better Lightning Network. That's sort of the burden that BIP 118 and its developers, I think, feel. And Check Template Verify, you know, for what it's worth, like it, it is not trying to be specifically delivering something for the Lightning Network, even though it does have some, some applications that really do benefit the Lightning Network. It doesn't have anybody who's like depending on a particular behavior of it. It's more like, here's a thing that we know how to do. It can do things for congestion control. It can do things for vaults. It can do things for lightning. It makes all of that a little bit better, but there's not like a very specific design it has to satisfy. And that, that, that's, I think, what makes BIP 118 uh, just like more difficult to say it's next and it's ready to go when th there are still these unanswered questions. Yeah, so hopefully that gives listeners some perspective on the compare and contrast between 118 and 119, which is check template verify. And so... I guess the other question people are probably thinking about is what kind of risks might CTV introduce into, let's say, those people who want to run a Bitcoin node? If you could just talk a little bit to the computation requirements, hard drive requirements, networking mm -hmm. requirements, are there any changes that 
people would need to think about there, would that reduce the accessibility in any way of, let's say, again, I, I'm, I'm not a developer, but I'm just trying to summarize how I understand it, that each Bitcoin node might now have to maintain and retain this proof and then sort of calculate, oh, okay, how many possible scenarios are there? Would my Bitcoin node be able to run that? And is that accessible for people? So if yeah. you could just answer that for people. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the, the biggest cost is just like any change to Bitcoin is a risk. People are, in my view, definitely over fixated on the risks of consensus changes. You know, we want the protocol to be well-defined and bug-free, but like any change to Bitcoin is, is pretty much like as likely as any other change to introduce a like critical bug or vulnerability. And like nobody is paying attention to like, well, some people are, but like nobody's paying attention to the same degree about like changes in the networking stack as they are about changes to like the script interpreter. I don't know why people don't care more about what's happening there, but for some reason, it's just like, you know, very, very popular to worry about soft forks, even though like kind of they're like the lowest risk because they get a lot more review anyways. So it's, it's just sort of like a weird paradox. That's, that's one thing that's like a cost, you know, for, 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 you know, node something that people could be worried about. Um, but in terms of, you know, assuming everything's all, you know, fine and dandy, if you're running a node, the, the main things for check template verify is that the, the amount of memory to validate a block, uh, goes up by, uh, I think about uh, 32 bytes uh, per transaction. It's not the biggest cost. Um, we've done bigger costs, like Taproot was substantially more, and that's in caching. And, and if that were a problem, we have some mitigations we can do to make uh, caching, uh, you know, use less memory synchronously. So there's some things we could do if it became a problem, but at that scope, like we make changes that use that much more memory, like all the time. And we don't worry that much about them because maybe we should, but like, we don't worry that much about them because it's kind of like rounding error amounts. Um, so it's, it's not, not a big deal. And, uh, you have to do a little bit more, uh, hashing as well. So you have to do a little bit more computation. It's on par with what we're doing already. It's a little bit more. And then, uh, during validation, if it weren't implemented correctly. And this again goes into the bug category. Like there could be things that could like, you know, take your node offline, something called a quadratic hashing bug, but the way that CTV is designed and uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit subtle. Like it's, it is immune to those things if you use the caches that I talked about previously. And that's why those are kind of required. And, and it is subtle. Cause it is something when people say like, I want more powerful covenants, oftentimes those more powerful covenants there's no way of implementing them without introducing some of these resource exhaustion attacks. So for example, uh, I can give you a very, very simple one. Check template verify commits to all the outputs. What if instead it had a, uh, an integer that corresponded to a bit mask of which outputs should be selected, right? So now we say, okay, well, we can do uh, up to 32 different outputs in a CTV transaction. And we have an integer that that tells us by either being a one or a zero for each index, which output we want to hash. Now it's possible to, you can't cache anymore. And it's possible to write a small script that causes you to do an N squared. That means you have to look at, you know, a thing that is N long N times validation. And that might be uh, for a block that's constructed by a malicious miner, that might be the entire block. So you might have basically like a megabyte times a megabyte of stuff to do. 
And that could be like way too much computation. And CTV designed not to have that problem, but even for mildly more sophisticated things, you run into to some of these issues. Um, and so I guess, you know, to, to, to concretely answer your question, like CTV should probably be as minimally invasive as possible for any sort of, you know, opcode change. You know, it's comparable to the addition. It's actually less of a burden than like check lock time verify or check sequence verify were because those required, you know, some more context being available in, in a different way than, than CTV does. But overall, you know, my, my point would be it's not that much. And if we were to do something more sophisticated, like there are a lot more things that we would have to be thinking about um, in terms of that validation cost. And that's part of CTV's design conservatism is that it's very easy to prove that it does not introduce any resource issues. Yeah. Are we seeing any commercial use ideas or do you foresee that coming down the line soon uh, in terms of, as you were saying, things like vaults, congestion control, non-interactive channels, maybe payment pools. Do you see any ideas around that or commercial use? The two commercial use things I've seen people get really excited about are congestion control and vaults, along with non-interactive channels. For uh, vaults, it's sort of, I'm not going to name names, but it's exactly who you'd expect in terms of people who manage a lot of, uh, a lot of Bitcoin. That is sort of a, you know, like a, it, it's a no-brainer and one of the weird things with vaults is like for protocol designers, you always want to say like, oh, like I want something that's more flexible that what if I wanted to do this? And what if I wanted to do that? And I wanted to allow vaults that could also do this for companies that custody Bitcoin. They're just like incredibly pragmatic. They're like, right now we're doing multi-sig. We would like to have more structure around this. We don't mind if we don't have like precise controls over like variable amounts getting withdrawn at different times. We manage lots of Bitcoin through different processes. What we want is a backbone that we can statically audit and prove is correct and like use very robustly. Like all these other things are kind of like the, you know, like, oh, it's like the 5% better version on top of the 95% improvement. So for them, I think like, that's the perspective I've seen for like, you know, large custodians. And, and there, uh, I, I think like two years ago, actually, and this just goes to show you like how long the CTV process has been. Like uh, Brian Bishop uh, published a open source, like CTV vault, you know, Python vault program and Sapio has vaults and, you know, people are toying around with thinking about different types of vault design and ways of composing them and what sort of triggers and things you might want to have. And that's something that, because CTV is so flexible, it's not like there's like one way to design vaults around CTV. It's like you can design whatever flow of the funds you want, which is actually very good for uh, institutions that might want to inject different numbers of, of checks or, you know, safeguards in. They can kind of pick and choose what, what parts they want. So that, that's sort of one side. The other thing uh, that is uh, popular is congestion control. Congestion control popularity is kind of interesting because like some people get really, really critical of me when I when I talk about it because they go, this is like the most boring problem you could have picked and nobody cares about it. Like, I don't get why you're doing it, except for the people who like congestion control, who get like exuberantly excited about it because <laughs> uh, it's like solves like some of these really big issues. And the people who get the most excited about it are people who work in the lightning space because what do they want to do? They want to open up lots of channels. Uh, I think Alex Bosworth tweeted recently, he said, people are talking about how we could make channel opening more efficient. However, we could open up a billion channels if we filled every block for a year with batch channel creations of 50 people doing a pre-signed transaction together. To and my response to that was kind of like, 
cool story, bro. We can do a single transaction that opens up a billion channels using CTV <laughs> and congestion control with like back pressure and everything The you know, if, if they have to do a contested close. And so that's where for people who are building, uh, you know, like services that maybe open up lots of channels, CTV really helps, really, really helps with that. So Moon is an example. Lightning Labs is also another example where they're going, huh, if we have CTV, we can create a request to open up a, we didn't talk about it, but non-interactive channel, create a request to open up a non-interactive channel. Our services can then aggregate these up however we want, and then we can create them all in a single output. That that for them is just like huge. It's like enormous for, uh, you know, like for example, the um, stuff happening in El Salvador, like a lot of those channels are hosted channels, which means somebody else has it. And part of the reason for that is like, it's difficult to open up a lot of channels for a lot of people who have like shitty cell service. And that's something where, oh, if you can non-interactively and people get, you know, they, they get pedantic about what non-interactive means. So you still have to communicate. It means that like every part of the thing is sort of like decoupled and uh, does not have any sort of DOS ability. Everything's asynchronous and aggregatable by a third party. That's what I mean when I say non-interactive. So for these service providers who want to get people having self-sovereign channels, it means that it solves one of these like very, very core backbone problems of like, how are we going to get millions of users on board? Do we have to be worrying about what fees rates are like on an, as an, on an ongoing basis? It basically just eliminates all those issues. So for congestion control, like people who are actually like reaching users at scale right now get very excited about it. People who aren't, you, you know, don't necessarily get it as, as much. Um, it's kind of, it's just one of these like very, it's very nuanced and niche seeming and the, the importance of it is kind of limited. I guess just to close on that, like the main thing that I think makes it clear for like anyone is like, well, what happens if you want to do a transaction paying out like a hundred million people, which you might want to do if you're like, if you're like El Salvador wanting to, or maybe not El Salvador, but like if you're the United States and you're going to say, okay, we started a Bitcoin wealth fund and we're going to open lightning channels once a year to every citizen, like how many blocks would you have to fill synchronously to do that? It would be like too many. This would let you like actually just create those channels uh, without having to worry about the underlying block space. So kind of when you blow up the scale of the problem, you can see that block space becomes a limiter for anything. But if you're just thinking in terms of like, well, blocks are still going to be pretty empty, then you don't see the problem as much. Yeah, that's very interesting. For, at least in today's condition. And I think that reminds me as well. This reminds me of Rusty's talk at the Lightning Conference in, I believe it was October 2019. He was saying in the early days of Bitcoin, people, they were saying, oh, look, it'll be low fee forever. And, and then now... Lightning, okay. But then Rusty's point was that, look, Lightning may not remain low fee forever as well because, again, the same thing of what's the cost of opening and closing channels? What's the cost of providing all all the things that a Lightning routing node operator is doing? So I think in the same way, maybe we're living in the golden age now with the mempool is easily accessible and we don't need advanced techniques. But I guess that's the argument for CTV, or at least to consider it, is that we could start optimizing our use of uh, block space even further with these kinds of techniques and these kinds of engineering ways of getting more for less basically so i think that's probably yeah. a good spot to finish up there so jeremy if you could just give everyone a i guess a summary uh why should they sort of think about learning more about ctv i mean personally i'm not necessarily saying yeah rah, rah, let's all do ctv i'm kind of neutral myself but i find it interesting and so i guess from your point of view why should people think about ctv and where should they go to learn more and follow you online yeah. Um, so I'm uh, at Jeremy Rubin on Twitter. You can find me there. Uh, there's a ton of material on utxos.org. 
And uh, my advent calendar, which is fun to read, is uh, rubin.io slash advent21. Um, so those are kind of great resources to uh, get started. Um, in terms of the case for, you know, like why care, why get excited, um, I, I would say kind of like there's like two things I, I would want to leave people with. One is that uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, we know how to do something today. We know how it could be used in the future if we ran into some of these problems, um, you know, in, in a larger uh, sense. And if we don't deploy something now, and this isn't just congestion control, we didn't really talk about privacy. CTV also has really good privacy, uh, you know, benefits. And privacy is something that's path dependent. We can't ever get it back for things we did historically with Bitcoin. It really makes sense to just get something that is available so that when we go to need the tool in a year, two years, three years from now, it's not, okay, we now have a problem. Now let's spend another block size wars debating it out like that that to me sounds like a lot of stress it's much better to do things that we know to be safe and have a possibility of solving some of the obstacles that we have down the road to me that seems like you know good planning um and is worth considering even if these things don't feel urgent to you today um the other side to it is that everybody thinks that well some people have said maybe they don't but like most people want more people to use bitcoin like there's some people who are like, oh, no, I don't want more people because my fees are going to go up. But it's like, OK, like I want Bitcoin to be useful. I want more people to use it. And for some of these things like non-interactive channels and uh, congestion control, combining those concepts like that legitimately is something that has the potential to bring a lot more users to Bitcoin. So if you want Bitcoin to be more useful, like it, I think it's it, this gets into the Jevons paradox is like the more efficient something is to use, the more people who end up using it and maybe it ends up looking less efficient. Maybe the fees do end up going up because now instead of having, you know, like, I don't know how many channels there are, but like maybe now we have billions of channels operating and things do get more expensive, but we're actually serving billions of people rather than, you know, a couple million. And so that's something that I think is, is also a powerful argument for, you know, why CTV, why now? And then the, the maximally selfish thing, if you're just a pleb and you're like, whatever, like, I don't care about all these, you know, businesses or operators like what's it going to do for me like the main thing is like hey vaults are really cool like everybody is concerned about how they're safeguarding their stack vaults and inheritance things are things that can give you a lot more self-sovereign control over what happens with your bitcoin um and can keep you a lot you know like basically help you get a better night's sleep like that's a pretty you know compelling argument for me personally but that's i think what i would leave uh leave folks with if you want to get excited for it Fantastic. Well, listeners, I'll include the links in the show notes. And Jeremy, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Let me know what you think about Check Template Verify and find the show notes at stefanlevera.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.